everybody welcome to the ac podcast this is steve i am joined today by a very special guest he's a good friend of the ministry at ac uh known him for a number of years we have all the way from bc mike shooten welcome to ac podcast mike hey it's really good to to be here and spend some time in conversation with you steve yeah, so Mike is the Director of Advocacy, and he's also the Interim Executive Director uh, for ARPA Canada. Now, I'm going to ask Mike to tell us a little bit more about who ARPA is and what they do. Yeah, he's Director of Advocacy. You also serve as the um, Director of We Need a Law campaign. So can you mm-hmm. tell our listeners a little bit about what is ARPA, what you guys do, and what is We Need a Law campaign? Yeah, for sure. Um, so ARPA Canada, sta- ARPA stands for the Association for Reformed Political Action. So, so we're a, essentially a political advocacy organization that's grounded on a reformed Christian worldview. Uh, and our mission is to educate, equip, and encourage Christians to political action. And then the second part of our mission is to take a biblical perspective to directly to government and to the courts. So we essentially have a two-part mission. One involves uh, a lot of work in the law and policy area. Uh, We engage in many court interventions. We obviously engage in direct advocacy work with government officials at the federal, provincial, and and even at the municipal level. Uh, ARPA Canada also operates essentially a public awareness campaign. That's how I would describe the We Need a Law efforts. So that's a specific campaign with different branding uh, with a very narrow focus, and that is advancing uh, legislation that protects preborn children. Uh, Canada is the only country in the world that has no such protection. Uh, so we work uh, in an incremental, step-by-step manner to, uh, again, there educate and equip and encourage Canadians as to what's going on, what is the status quo, and then providing uh, solutions that will protect preborn children. Yeah, so for those of you listeners who have been with us for a long time, um, ARPA is obviously not an unfamiliar name. We've uh, had interviews with uh, Andre before on different issues. And in fact, I think, mm-hmm. I, I don't know if we had you on the show before, Mike, maybe not, maybe this is the first time. But either way, we've uh, worked with ARPA before. We've had a speaker from uh, ARPA at our conference a few years ago. So uh, ARPA is a good ministry friend, and we really appreciate the work that you do. Now, as this, if, if you're listening to this on the day that this episode is released, that means this uh, evening is when our 2023 Apologetics Canada conference is kicking off uh, in Abbotsford, B.C., Now, uh, one of the topics that we're going to be addressing is doctor-assisted death or MAID, medical assistance in dying, is sort of the uh, legal term that is being used in Canada today. Um, Mm -hmm. And this is an issue that is on the mind of a lot of Canadians because we've been looking at, our government has been looking at adding mental health uh, conditions as uh, an eligibility criterion for accessing doctor-assisted death. Um, and so we're going to get into all of that. Now, uh, as I understand, and you've, you've told me and I've watched the video, you actually, you and your wife both actually had a chance to go speak before, um, was it the Justice Committee or is, was that the, at the House of Commons? Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, it was it was at the House of Commons. It was actually a, a joint parliamentary committee, so that means it's a uh, committee made up right. of senators and members of parliament. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Now, when we talk about this issue, especially doctor-assisted death, um, I mean, it, it is a, a social issue. It is an ethical issue. So it's so easy for us to just kind of abstract mm-hmm. it and talk mm-hmm. uh, in abstract terms. But uh, you've had to really walk through this in the recent years. And and that's why I think your voice is really important because it really puts faces and names to this 
what can be really abstract issue for a lot of people, especially as we discuss it as a matter of public policy. Can you can you walk our listeners through a little bit of that? What's been going on in your life? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the, the context is important too, Steve, like how um, in Canada, it really has only been seven years since we've had legal uh, doctor-assisted death. And um, it's incredible how quickly um, the, the medical assistance in dying regime in Canada, the euthanasia regime, has mm-hmm. become one of the most permissive in the, in the whole world. And it's really, a, it's something like you said, you, you just said, we, especially as an organization, have worked on from a policy perspective, uh, trying to convince policymakers that it's wrong to cross this line whereby it's, it's legal for some humans to take the lives of other humans. Um, and, and there's many reasons why it's wrong, of course, but what is, is perhaps one of the most disturbing things is that this is being turned to, euthanasia is being turned to by Canadians who are suffering because they don't see any other solution to their suffering. Uh, they, they don't uh, have a Christian perspective on suffering. And so they're seeing suffering as something to, to run from, something to flee from. And they're asking the state uh, through the doctors and medical practitioners to end their lives because in their, in their view, their suffering is too much to bear. Uh, so, yeah, it was, it was, you know, for quite a few years, we've been working on this file. ARPA Canada in, intervened even in the Supreme Court decision that did open the door to, to legal euthanasia. Uh, but then, um, yeah, this past two years, uh, God has put something on our family's path that's forced us to wrestle with his sovereignty. And um, it, it started in, in February 2021 when our son, our, our 17-year-old son, was diagnosed with Ewing sarcoma. Uh, so that's an aggressive form of bone cancer. And we had to, to walk that journey with our child of, of going to BC Children's Hospital and and during months and months of treatment, um, it involved numerous surgeries, uh, reconstructive surgeries to his shoulder, um, parts of his lung removed, all, all kinds of medical interventions. Um, and in the end, those medical interventions were, were not going to cure him. It became clear to us and to the doctors and to, and to him, to Marcus, uh, that uh, he was not going to win this fight. And we needed to accept that God was calling him him home at a much earlier age than many of us would have wanted or expected. So all of a sudden, all of the policy stuff that we looked at when it related to euthanasia uh, was, was, we were forced to walk that journey ourselves. And we have this now lived experience of suffering and end of life care and palliative care and what hospice is and what it can do and, and um, watching one of your loved ones pass away. And through that process, uh, we became even more passionate and convinced that, that as a society, we can care for each other. Uh, we can endure suffering together. We can find meaning <clears throat> even in suffering uh, without having to turn to the state to ask uh, them to end our lives, to, to kill us. So, <clears throat> yeah, it's been a, a hard road, but one that now um, we feel called to to speak into this debate with our our personal lived experience in in order to hopefully make a difference and and get people to wrestle with some of those bigger life questions. Uh, mm-hmm. We're very thankful that um, Marcus, even when he was alive still, he recognized that the work that we do with ARPA Canada, it related to what we were going through. Uh, and I'll never forget him telling me that, uh, Dad, he said, I, I see how Oh, your work is connected to what we're we're going through in my cancer. And he said, if if you can share our story to make a difference, then you should you should share our story to make a difference. So so it's very good for me as a, a father and for us as parents to be able to know that as hard as it is, and in in some small way to to steward the sorrow that God has put on our path uh, in order to try to make a difference. Yeah, you know. Uh- as we continue on, first off, my condolences to you. There is a saying where I come from that when your parents pass away, you bury them in the ground. But when your child passes away, you bury them in your heart. So mm-hmm. um, this can't be easy. And this is the sort of not the sort of thing that you just get used to. You can only learn to cope mm-hmm. with it. Um, but uh, But like you said, knowing that Marcus 
saw the importance and the connection between what you as a family were going through and and your work with ARPA. And that that must give you a lot of comfort knowing that that there, mm-hmm. you know, his death is not in vain, that there is something good that can come from it. Yeah, it certainly does. I I mean, when we look back now, there's there is a lot of good that um, God allows us to experience in in our sorrow and in our suffering. And one of them is that that um, God shaped and molded a a 17 year old, you know, young man um, to have such deep faith whereby he could accept what God was doing in his life, whereby he used every opportunity he could to to enjoy the days that God gave him and to, mm-hmm. to help, you know, his family, us as his parents, his siblings, uh, his friend group. He had a very close knit friend group who were with him right to the end uh, to, to just share with them essentially the gospel and encourage them. You know, we, we never know when Jesus calls us home or, or when Christ returns and we always need to be ready. Mm-hmm. And he was ready. Okay. Yeah. Now, um, I, as we continue, there are, are going to be some listeners maybe tuning in from, say, the United States or some other part of the world that may not be very familiar with what's going on in Canada, or even some some of our Canadian listeners who are not really in touch with what's going on with respect to euthanasia, doctor-assisted death. So uh, we're going to talk about a lot of these issues, and, and especially from your personal lived experience, but just to kind of get us all on the same page, and you touched on this a little bit earlier, but could you give us a bit of a rundown on the history of euthanasia in Canada recently? Sure. Yeah. It's uh, like I said, it, it hasn't been that long since we crossed that sacred line, so to speak. Um, so it, I think it's safe to say that pe- proponents of euthanasia, advocates for legal euthanasia, they began their work a, a long time ago, decades ago even. Uh, this often took place through the use of uh, private members' bills. Uh, there was a, an infamous case, Sue Rodriguez, uh, back in 1993, where she she um, took her case. She was a um, disabled lady, took her case all the way to the Supreme Court, asking them to rule that Canada's laws prohibiting assisted suicide were unconstitutional. At that time, the Supreme Court said, no, they, they are constitutional and Canadians are not going to have the, the right to have a government official, a medical practitioner in their life. Uh, but, but their agitations continued. And, um, and then in 2015, the, the Supreme Court heard another case. Uh, this was a case of Kay Carter, uh, another woman with disabilities who asked the court to rule that um, she could avail herself of assisted suicide. And, and in that case, the court ruled, yes, indeed, the laws prohibiting this, prohibiting assisted suicide were unconstitutional. And essentially, then in our system, then put the ball back in in the lawmakers court, the politicians court and said, you need to craft a new law that uh, recognizes this, uh, but also has proper safeguards and protections in place. Uh, So in 2016, the the government of Canada passed a bill, it was called at the time Bill C-14, and that made it legal for people to, um, to request euthanasia and receive it. Uh, but it had strict parameters. It was only for those whose death was imminent, who were very near the end of their life and who were dealing with a terminal diagnosis. Uh, so that it wasn't made to be available to um, to many people. Uh, the people that were in favor of euthanasia continued to, to agitate. Uh, and another case came before a lower court in Quebec. Uh, it's often referred to as the Truchon case, the Truchon decision where somebody challenged the law that had just been passed in 2016. So this was in in 2020 that this case came before the courts in Quebec. And uh, that lower court judge ruled the the law that had just been passed as unconstitutional. Now, normally what happens in these cases is that uh, the the government will will appeal this decision and say, hey, you you can't just toss out our law that we just passed four years ago. Uh, We're going to appeal this. We want it to go to the next level of court and have them decide but the government chose not to. Uh, they they looked at it and thought, oh, okay, here's an opportunity to actually uh, advance um, euthanasia even further to make it more permissive. Uh, so they introduced another bill, Bill C-7, and that was passed in 2021. And that bill, it, it really opened up uh, euthanasia to a lot more people, people who were 
were not terminally ill, people whose death was not reasonably foreseeable. Um, it, it introduced what's often called to as a two-track system where people who had a terminal illness could request euthanasia and receive it relatively quickly. Other people for reasons of disability or um, yeah, suffering in general could request euthanasia and be put on a 90-day track where they, they could re receive that, but it would, wouldn't be for within 90 days, supposedly to give them time, right, to change their mind. So that's where we that's where we were at. But the, the part that most Canadians were not aware until recently was that when that bill passed, C7, it included what, what is called a sunset clause. So And that was introduced by the Senate. So in Canada, laws have to be passed through two houses of parliament, through the House of Commons, and then they go to the Senate, the Chamber of Sober Second Thought, where they're given approval and then sent back to the House of Commons for a royal, royal assent. Now, the Senate, it actually changed the bill. It made it even more permissive by adding this sunset clause, which said, as of two years of the passage of this bill, we, we want to ensure that people can request euthanasia. And, and you alluded to this earlier uh, for reasons of mental illness as the sole underlying condition. So people who were dealing with mental illness could make the request for euthanasia based solely on that. Uh, they had no other disabilities. There was nothing else going wrong in their life, but they, they had a diagnosed mental illness. So that when Canadians became aware of that, it's so fascinating, Steve, how this happened, because they, um, they reacted en masse, really, by saying, this is not right. We, we can't allow this to happen. And as that sunset clause, uh, we came closer to it, and it expires March 17th, 2023, so very soon. Uh, Canadians were calling their government, and, and more publications were publicizing this. Uh, people were reacting uh, viscerally almost to the fact that we're going to actually allow this to happen in our country. So the government took notice, so much so that they introduced their own bill earlier this year saying, let's delay Let's delay that for another year, uh, just to give us more time, just to give Canadians more time to get used to this idea, ensure there's proper parameters in place and so on. Uh, so that's where we are today, uh, where this bill is likely to pass uh, next week in the House of Commons and in the Senate. Uh, that gives another year to try to get this right before we actually take that step of making it legal uh, for people with mental illness. I'm not very familiar with this, how sunset clauses work. So what does it mean mm -hmm. when the Senate put in the sunset clause? So essentially, it's a, it was a part of the bill that got included in the criminal code. And it said that um, euthanasia for people with essentially euthanasia for people with mental illness is illegal until this date. And then it becomes legal. Mm -hmm. and, oh. and as of that date, that piece essentially it it's buried, like it, it's no longer relevant because it's now legal, right? So yeah, a very kind of sneaky way from this by the Senate to, to include that. Uh, but it, it goes to show where we're at as a country culturally and um, ethically and morally when uh, those in, in charge of uh, introducing and passing laws um, are, are advancing this so quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, and one thing, that I've kind of observed, and it's not just me, anybody who is sort of interested in this topic and that are engaged in this topic have observed that wherever euthanasia and doctor-assisted death have been legal, uh, the, the door seems to, once the door opens, it seems to open ever wider and never seems to close or even, you know, close even mm -hmm. just a little bit it, it only seems to go one way w would you agree with that so i would agree with that in the sense of that's what a lot of people foretold when we did cross this line like you back in 2015 2016 you would have heard a lot of people mm -hmm. talking about it you know this is we're going down a slippery slope here this is dangerous and a lot of those people uh, were um their concerns were dismissed, saying that's just a, that's just fear mongering. Come on, don't you don't need to bring that up right now. But but essentially, what has happened is that that very thing has manifested, where it's been shown that when you cross this line and allow it for some, it's very hard to then deny it for others. And we're seeing that more and more people are being allowed to request this. But I think that we need to also recognize that that Canada is distinct in, in this, in the sense of. 
um, opening up the door wider and wider and making it more and more permissive. Right? So when we look at the statistics in Canada, they've increased tenfold in, in only five years. Mm-hmm. In 2016, there was a th- just over a thousand people who, who made a request for euthanasia and received it. In 2020, so five years later, sorry, 2021, five years later, over 10,000 people requested wow. euthanasia and received it. And for comparison, um, the state of California, which has a very similar population as Canada, they also legalized euthanasia and assisted suicide the very same year as Canada did. But in 2021, there was approximately, I think it was 400 and something, it was less than 500 people who availed themselves of euthanasia. And, and one of the key differences in the state of California compared to Canada as a nation is that in, in California, they don't practice what's called euthanasia. They practice assisted suicide. So when somebody wants to end their life, the doctor will assist them, essentially say, here's the medicine. Uh, it's in this cup. You need to drink it. I'm going to leave the room and you do it when you want to do it. Um, most people can't do that. They can't actually take that step. Um, that's a key difference in California compared, when you compare California to Canada. When we look to Europe, uh, there's other jurisdictions in Europe that have had legal euthanasia, Belgium, the Netherlands, um, Sweden, for quite some time. Uh, they also have far more stringent parameters in, in place as to how euthanasia can be requested and approved uh, and then obviously acted upon. Uh, so the numbers haven't exploded in the same way as they have here in Canada. So, so just so your listeners are aware, Canada is distinct in the, in the sense of the, the so-called safeguards that government tried to assure us that were in place, they weren't really safeguards and whatever is there isn't really working. Mm-hmm. And that seems to be something of a pattern where <clears throat> something that is uh, perceived by socially conservative people as dangerous, they'll say, okay, this is going to go down a slippery slope. Their concerns are dismissed. And then later, they're in a sense vindicated, uh, even though people may not talk about it. Uh, speaking of uh, mental health condition, now that in some ways was surprising to me that so many people spoke up against it. Um, even people that I would consider to be socially quite progressive, and I would have expected to support. Um, this sunset clause, really, but a lot of people stood up and and fought against it, and it was really interesting too. The, this weird sort of cognitive dissonance, maybe is not the right term, but in January, as you probably noticed, there was the, the you know Bell Let's Talk, and so so many. It's a, so for our listeners who may not be familiar with this, maybe if you're listening from outside the country. There is a day in January uh, that's kind of headed up by this company, Bell, uh, this telecommunication company, where it's a day of, okay, let's talk about mental health, right? Let's talk Mm -hmm. about depression. Let's talk about anxiety and let's talk about all these things. And so many politicians, including the ones, the very ones that are pushing these bills, uh, pushing euthanasia, doctor-assisted suicide, they were saying, yes, we need to talk about mental health. We need to talk about uh, people that are suffering uh, sort of in the the sort of shadows of society, not knowing where to turn to. And I found it really fascinating that on the one hand, we're so eager to help people that are suffering mentally. And yet on the other hand, in the same breath, we are call in a sense calling for their death. Let's, let's relieve you of your suffering by offering you death. Uh, and it must have hit you very different after having gone through um, this whole journey with Marcus. What was your experience mm-hmm. like right around that time? Yeah, this fascinating conversation because we um, a week before Jennifer and I presented to that joint committee that we talked about earlier, mm-hmm. uh, another family had presented a very similar situation. Uh, but the mo- the mother in that instance was advocating for euthanasia to become legal for minors because her son mm-hmm. was not able to avail himself of euthanasia because because currently in Canada if you're under 18 you're not allowed to euthanize you you can't access it and um, it was just fascinating to to hear her 
because of such a different worldview, like such a clash of worldviews where when you take this uh, a secular understanding of autonomy to its to its lengths, to its extreme, then how can you deny anybody the, the right, so-called right to euthanasia? You need to make it available and legal for everybody because that's their right. But yet you have this, um, like you said, cognitive dissonance where we have things like Bell Let's Talk Day. One, one example that always comes to mind for me, and I'll, I'll never forget as a young kid riding around on a Saturday or something with my dad and had the talk radio station on. And every 10 minutes, a traffic report comes on. And sometimes the traffic report uh, here in the lower mainland where I live, there's the Fraser River. And there's lots of bridges that cross the Fraser River. And sometimes a traffic reporter would say, uh, the Portman Bridge or the Petula Bridge or the Alex Fraser Bridge is closed due to a police incident. And I remember asking my dad uh, about that. What, is the, what do they mean when they say that? And he told me, they said, there's probably somebody who th- they're so sick of living, they're threatening to jump off the bridge. So they close the bridge. All the first responders are going to help that person um, try to see some value in their life and talk them back from the edge and provide them with the help they need. And we've made incredible strides in that, in helping people who are in such a state of despair that they're willing to go to to those kind of lengths. And yet, on the other hand, now we're making it actually legal, essentially, proverbially speaking, going up to them at the edge of the bridge and saying, you're right, your life isn't worth living and we'll actually help you jump off. So it's, it's this fascinating conundrum that we're in. And I think that that's why so many people reacted um, so strongly, whether they were faith-based or had no religion or agnostic, they, they, they just saw this as uh, two completely separate and, and far different responses to uh, the struggles that, that many of us have had or know people who have had with mental illness. Mm-hmm. And this is this comes to me as a very personal thing because I myself have, as with many other people, suffered from depression, especially in my early 20s. I cut myself, even though I don't think I really ever wanted to kill myself at the time because if I had, I really wanted to do that, I knew exactly how to do it and I didn't go through with it. But nonetheless, I was making a show and I look back and I think to myself, man, that was really a cry for help. And and how many people will we be sending to their early grave, not recognizing that what they're doing, what they're struggling with really is a cry for help and and not their wish for death. Now, could you, I mean, we're going to put your testimony before the Joint Committee, you and your wife, Jennifer, uh, we're going to include that in the show note. But uh, to those who are listening right, listening in right now, could you just kind of give us a quick synopsis of what you talked about? Sure. Yeah, we were so we were able to share uh, with that committee uh, essentially our, the last few days that we had with Marcus in hospice care, as um, yeah, his caregivers did everything they could to ensure that, that no matter how long or how short he had to live, he could live each one of those days and and as it came towards the end, each one of those hours, how he could live them as well as possible. And I think that. What we experienced, and this is what we tried to convey to the to the committee, we experienced how when the people who are providing care for you, your family, your caregivers, and, and essentially even the authorities, the state in this case, uh, when they affirm your dignity and value and assure you that your life is worth living, no matter how much you're suffering, um, that's incredibly powerful. And it was so we saw that with our son Marcus, it was so powerful that no one um, around him. No, none of his caregivers, none of his family gave up on him. And it just pains us, and we conveyed this to them. It pains us to know that there might come a time in our country where families in the very same position as, as we were in have the people they're looking to for help signal to them that they're giving up. And wh- whether it's suffering from, that, from a terminal cancer or the suffering you just talked about, Steve, right, that you experienced in your 20s, um, you you needed people to surround you, um, assuring you that, Steve, it's going to be okay. We can get through this. We're going to work through this together. If you had had somebody come up to you and say, I think you're kind of right, Steve. Like, your life's not really worth living. You're in a crappy time. It sucks. That would have been devastating to you when you were grappling with those mental health issues. 
It would have been devastating to Marcus, to our whole family, if at the moment when his doctor and oncologist advised us that there's not more we can do to cure you, Marcus, there's not more we can do. Uh, but what we can do is ensure that however long you live, we're going to make sure that every day is lived well. That was incredibly powerful. But if in that same conversation, he would have said, and if it gets if it gets too bad, um, we, we can schedule medical assistance in dying. It's really relatively easy for us to do that because you have a terminal illness. Marcus would have heard then. He would have heard, oh, oh, so you don't think my wife, life might be worth living? You, you th- you're giving up on me? Like you're the person who's been caring for me and now you're giving up on me. So that's the part where we really tried to convey that to them. It's hard, it's hard for people who haven't experienced that to, to understand it. Uh, and that's unfortunate because I think it, it, it takes away something of our humanity and the relational aspect that God has placed us in relation with people to care for each other, to love each other, uh, to sacrifice for each other so that we can live well. And we're missing that, and we're losing more and more of it the the further we go down this slippery slope. Now, I, I want to maybe uh, kind of play. <laughs> I actually really hate this phrase when when, when people say, you know, "Hey, I want to play the devil's advocate." I don't want to play the devil's mm. advocate, but let me give you some pushback here because I can hear some people saying, "Hey, listen, Mike, you know, I'm so sorry that you went through whatever." you know, you and your family had to go through losing your son at such a tender age. Um, mm-hmm. But that, you know, your view of suffering, your Christian worldview, that is your view. Uh, we, we shouldn't bring that into the sphere of public policy. Let people choose for themselves. Why are you trying to impose your own religious views on other people? Um, have you received a pushback like that? And mm-hmm. how would you respond to that? Yeah. Yeah, so we did. We did receive, especially when we presented to the committee, because after we presented our, our remarks, uh, they were able to ask us questions. And so for about 45 minutes straight, they asked us different questions. And some of them were along the very lines that, that you just asked, Steve. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, we, when we look back on that time where we spent with the committee, we, we might have answered things a, a little bit differently. Um, our goal at the time was to impress upon them over and over how we have the abilities in our country to ensure that people can live well, no, no matter how much they're suffering. Our, our son essentially drowned to death. That's how he died. His lungs filled with tumors and slowly he drowned to death. And yet they were able to care for him in such a way that he was never in panic because he was drowning as, as short as his breath would get, they had uh, oxygen and assistance to, to help him. They, they, all kinds of um, interventions could take place to ensure that he, d- he, he was suffering for sure, but he was never in such a state of despair that he wanted to kill himself and end his life. And, and when you talk to people in the palliative care field, this is what they will assure you of. But, but the point, what I'm trying to get to here is we, we did... We don't regret it, but there are times, I think, when we just simply need to impress upon people that it's not my view of suffering. It's not how just how I think it should be. It's how God designed it to be, right? We know th- that there's many people who don't believe in a Christian worldview, but yet for thousands and thousands of years, God has seen fit and people have responded in such a way that when suffering occurs amongst fellow human beings— we rally around them. We do everything we can to mitigate that suffering and to care for them until God calls them home. And that's exactly how it was in Canada until 2015. And then a court decided that that needed to change. And now we live in a country where when you're suffering, oh, you're suffering? Well, why don't you request made? You can just end it. And that that is very disturbing and I think reckless on behalf of our lawmakers to allow it to get to that point. Yeah. I mean, it, it to to me it, as I think about how people who are suffering, when we come to them and say, "I'm going to dignify you," I'm going to affirm your value by letting you choose death. It doesn't really uh, resonate with me. It doesn't really sit with me like, "Hey, I'm actually affirming that person's value," but it feels it it sounds way more like I'm just abandoning the person. Hey, you figure this out. 
right? You have this option rather than there, there's the really human element in suffering, right? With that, that's where the word compassion comes from, which means to suffer together, literally to suffer mm-hmm. together. And so if I, if I know somebody who is dying or who's suffering, uh, I think the more compassionate response is to be with the person uh, in whatever mm-hmm. way I can, rather than saying, well, you have this option, you deal with it. In a, in a sense, that's what we're saying. So, yeah. um, in fact, I remember I was speaking at a Christian Medical and Dental Association event. I was invited and mm-hmm. I was speaking there, and the topic of doctor-assisted suicide came up. And one of the doctors there, I won't mention his name, but he said he felt quite the opposite. He felt, well, I think I'm dignifying the patient by actually honoring that patient's request for death. Uh, and mm-hmm. so many Christian doctors and nurses just abandon the patient. So there, there are these two clashes here. So from yeah. your perspective, everything that you've kind of gone through, how, how would you not maybe reconcile those things, but how would you process through that? How would you navigate through that? Mm-hmm. So it, it is, I think, uh, we're, we're at a time when uh, Christians in particular need to, uh, what I call, witness their suffering. Uh, so that means that, especially as Christians, we have so much to offer into this current public policy debate uh, in the sense of how do we how do we and what have we learned from the scriptures when it comes to suffering? Well, well the, the scriptures are very clear that it's through suffering that God refines you, that God essentially glorifies you through suffering. We're, we're at a time now where as Christians, we're also influenced by the world. And more and more Christians are seeing suffering as a nuisance, something to flee from, something to avoid, something to be embarrassed about or ashamed about. Um, I'm not suggesting we go out and pursue suffering. We don't, we don't seek it out. But I think you know, we have to learn, learn from people like Job, right? Who through two interactions with the devil's hand in his life, uh, eventually sat there scraping his body, um, putting ashes on his head. The only person in his life left was his wife. And what did his wife say to him? She said, why don't you just curse God and die? Essentially, just curse God and kill yourself. And his response is so incredibly telling um, to us as Christians. But then I think that we need to share that into the world, that we can't just serve a God whom we expect good from and, and thank him and love him when good comes. But then when, when evil comes, we abandon him and his laws and his design for our lives. We need to, we need to as Job said, right, should we only accept good and not evil from a loving God? How do we grow through this? And uh, when, when Marcus was diagnosed, the, um, the, obviously the first weeks are a bit of a blur. But I'll never forget um, constantly preaching to myself, Mike, as a, a leader, faith leader in your home, you need to be assuring your family that we don't know why God has visited us upon us, but we know that in our response, we need to grow closer to him. And I prayed often with our family and with Marcus's friends that um, should God take Marcus's life early, that his friends and our family would be able to look back in 10, 20, 30 years and say, that was a period of life where I grew closer to God, not farther away from him. And as Christians, so just one practical example to give you, right? If if you know somebody in your neighborhood who is a senior, who's old or lonely, uh, there's probably going to come a time in their life where they feel like they're just like, what a waste of what a waste of life. Like, why are they just living here in this apartment or in this house or in this home all by themselves? If you take an hour every week to go spend with them and express to them that you love them as a human being ask them questions about their life, their history, etc. Their disposition towards life itself will change immensely in a very quick quick and short period of time. Because all of a sudden they feel like their life is worth living. Someone's interested in me. Someone cares about me. So we have a lot to, to learn as Christians in, in how to, uh, through our witness, through our actions, contribute to this current narrative that's going on. And ultimately, that's why we were thankful we were able to share our testimony with that joint committee to try to put uh, a real situation into this policy debate. Because 
because laws impact people's lives and we don't always um, we don't always make that connection as closely as we should right you know i i find that um i find it really interesting i i i forget where i heard this but um before the carter v canada decision came down in 2016 before that mm-hmm. um you know medical professionals in general said no a doctor assisted suicide or euthanasia is wrong uh we shouldn't do it but then as soon as the the thing passed or the decision came down, I should say, um, people's attitude, medical professionals' attitude changed very drastically, I would say, and mm-hmm. many of them are quite uh, supportive of it. And so um, without sort of getting into the ethics of all of that, I think one thing that this demonstrates is that law informs conscience. Um, and, and so law is really it has that that teaching uh, sort of Mm -hmm. impact on our conscience i I find now as you were walking through marcus's last days with the family what were some things that you did to make his life more meaningful so so there was a lot of them and we, we you know we wrote a lot down so that we wouldn't forget um i think there's a there's a what some of the some of the experiences we had we we just haven't shared as a family they're they're too intimate um one that was really neat for us uh was on the friday evening um so he went into the hospice on a friday afternoon and and our daughter is married and her husband was flying in from edmonton he he wasn't there yet Uh, we thought marcus was going to go that evening it seemed like it and um so we were just praying with him, singing. Um, it was a beautiful couple of hours that we had together. Uh, but then when when our daughter and her husband, she had to go pick him up at the airport when they arrived, um, it was just a beautiful moment where she told them that they were expecting a baby and uh, and if, if they had a girl, they were going to name her Marla after Marcus because some of us called him Marmar. Um, and just to see the emotions of that moment and to have him know that that would happen um, he was just so so thankful um, it was a short time after that when he he said to to my wife jennifer who was sitting beside him at the time um, can, can you guys all be quiet and my wife said oh um, yeah we can be quiet he said i want a private moment with god and and to see your 17 year old son um, just express his faith in that way and 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 try to fold his hands across his his, his uh, midsection and just spend some moments with God alone. Um, it was just fascinating to see. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the, the other thing that we did share with the committee, and, and I, I think is, is also a, an important part of the conversation when it comes to euthanasia, is that there is something um, in a fascinating way that, that's liberating about not knowing when the end will come but not knowing exactly when the end will come mm-hmm. and uh, we like i said we thought marcus was going to go on, on the friday evening and he was ready we were prepared for that uh, we laid with him all through the night and and saturday morning the sun came up and became light again and he was still with us and i said to marcus i said do you want me to try and see if your friends can come and uh he said, yeah, dad, that would be, be awesome. So I called him up and, uh, you know, it turned out they were, they were all staying together at one of the, one of the guys houses, uh, just praying and thinking about their friend Marcus. And, and within an hour and a half, they were downtown Vancouver at the, at the hospice, Canuck Place hospice there. And they spent like an hour and a half to two hours together where, uh, Marcus had energy to listen to them, to share some words with each of them, words of encouragement, um, some some cases even words of, of rebuke and, and warning, like, guys, you, you need to live right with Jesus. Uh, this is serious stuff. And it was just a most powerful time. So the point being that if you um, take matters into your own hands and decide when your life is going to end, you cut off. Um, imaginably be uh, beautiful experiences 
that you might have uh, with your loved ones. And it, there was just something so uh, freeing about that, how we could live moment by moment, knowing that Marcus was being well cared for, and, and together we could enjoy those moments uh, before God called him home. Mm-hmm. I think there is something very human about reacting to things that are mm-hmm. not under our control, I find. So I think of, for example, emotions in a similar way, because there are some people who, through the use of technology and pharmaceuticals and things like that, just to kind of manipulate their emotions to turn them on and off at will. But as soon mm-hmm. as we have that kind of control, our emotions become inauthentic. They're, they're, our emotions are exact, valuable exactly because they are reactions to things in some ways that are not under our control. If we're just kind of manufacturing feelings, what mm-hmm. value is in those emotions? I have to wonder. And I think something very similar could be said of knowing when we're going to die and having that under our own control um, what what becomes of the meaning of the time that we have here? Um, what you said just now really stood out to me when, when you said it was liberating, um, because that's exactly the opposite of how a lot of our secular friends might think in terms of because you're not you you can't exercise autonomy uh, in, in terms of ex- choosing exactly when you're going to die. But what stands out to me is the fact that just listening to your story and listening to the story of Marcus, when he was having you know friends and family come by, um, in, in those moments, in a sense, he, I mean, he it doesn't sound like he was afraid to die. He he knew that this was coming, but death really had no power over him. In a sense, he was just concerned about spending the last moments that he had with his family and friends in a meaningful way, but really doesn't Mm -hmm. sound to me like somebody who is afraid of dying, would you say? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think all through Marx's cancer journey, um, he, he lived in such a way that uh, he could give this over to God. Uh, Did we do our best to, to fight the cancer and through the uh, healthcare uh, practitioners at BC Children's Hospital, they did everything they could to try to eradicate his body of cancer. But when when the point came where there just there wasn't more that could be done to cure him, he he very quickly, in fact, even well before that, I'll never forget mm-hmm. driving home with him um, after the very first sort of whole day consultation with the oncology team where we found out what was going on and what had to happen and so on. Uh, he said to us when we were driving home, he said, this sounds like the kind of cancer that if they don't get it right away and it comes back at all, then you might as well go home because there's not more they can do. Uh, so he knew right away that it was a very serious form of cancer and that things might come to this. Uh, he wasn't afraid to die, though, because he knew that his death was an entrance into the, the literal arms of Jesus. And I think that was for us as as family, perhaps the most powerful moment when Marcus, uh, throughout the course of his time in the hospice, he he would say to us often, he said, if I could cry, I would be crying. Um, But he he couldn't cry. That was one of the impacts of the medication that he was on. It just, it was hard for him to show that emotion. Um, When he took his last breath, a huge tear rolled down his cheek. And it was just, it was, I describe it as the closest you can be to heaven while not being in heaven, where he was, you know, he could hear us still. He couldn't see anymore, but he could hear us. And then he woke up and, and there was the face of Jesus, his savior. And he, he knew that that was going to happen. And therefore he wasn't, he wasn't scared of death uh, throughout the whole course of his journey. And this is so meaningful for my wife, especially he never shook his fist at God. He was deeply grieved, deeply saddened, uh, but he never shook his fist at God, never once. Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, I don't think I can do this much longer. 
without breaking down. So I think we're going to wrap this up pretty quickly here. Um, but um, mm -hmm. I mean, we, you've already told us a lot of things, but if you were to sort of leave us, leave our listeners with one thing that you think is the most important thing for us to hear from you mm -hmm. and your family, including Marcus, what would that be? That each one of us is going to, in different ways, experience suffering, uh, either personally or um, with those closest to us. And we need to uh, find ways to ensure that in that suffering, we're not led to despair because we find no meaning at all in the suffering. Uh, so the challenge for us is to find meaning in suffering. Because when we find meaning in suffering, we will not be led to despair. Uh, and that's an even greater challenge for, for Christians um, who have truth on their side and who are the embodiment of, of Christ uh, to the world. Mm -hmm. We need to be able to witness that response to suffering um, where, where we're living in a world that increasingly is responding with their request for euthanasia. So you don't need to be political to get involved in this. You don't need to understand all the laws uh, where they're at. We need to do what God has, has called us to do, to be his light uh, into a, an increasingly dark world, especially when it comes to um, suffering and end-of-life care, euthanasia, and assisted suicide. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of that. Uh, as we wrap up, if our listeners want to learn more about the work of ARPA and want to engage more with doctor-assisted suicide, that issue, not that they would access mm -hmm. it, but they want to engage with the social issue, uh, where would yeah. you send them? So ARPA Canada has a, a separate um, campaign, if you will, that's focused specifically on this issue as well. It's called Care Not Kill. And the, the URL is simply that, carenotkill.ca. And at that website, you'll find information on what we, Steve and I have been talking about, as well as um, action items, what you can do to, uh, to help make a difference. Great. Thank you so much, Mike, for taking some time out of your busy schedule to share Absolutely. with our listeners something, something so personal. So thank you for mm -hmm. giving us your trust in that. And uh, I pray... God's richest blessings on you and your family and the very important work that you're doing for the weak and the vulnerable in our country. So thank you for joining, joining us today. Yeah, th thank you so much for having me on, Steve. Really appreciate it. All right, listeners, thank you for joining us for another edition of the AC Podcast. The AC Podcast is a ministry of Apologetics Canada. We'll come back next week with more stuff to think about. Until then, you know the drill. Love God. Love people. Bye for now. It's the AC Podcast. For the love of God, love people.